a Boston conservative in the cradle of liberty. You'll want to listen when Chuck Moore speaks on the Information Radio Network. And good afternoon. It is I, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, 10 till noon, Eastern Standard Time, here at the Information Radio Network and Affiliates. You're welcome to join the program, 844-439-1391, 844-439-1391. And my guest is Shai ben Tekoa, who is calling in from the State of Israel. Shai is the author of Phantom Nation, Inventing the Palestinians, and the obstacle to peace. He uh, is an American native who made Aliyah back in the 1970s, I believe. He's been uh, an advisor to uh, Israeli Prime Minister Shamir, where he uh, did research on the uh, origins and nature of the uh, Palestinian people. Uh, Shai, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, and may I make two minor corrections uh, for the sake of uh, accuracy. The name of the book is Palestinian pa- pa- Phantom Nation, Inventing the Palestinians as the Obstacle to Peace. And I was not an advisor to uh, Prime Minister Shamir, but I was hired by his chief of staff to do a research project from which came this book. Great. Okay, and it's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble in case uh, our uh, No Barnes & Noble, just Amazon exclusively. Great. Okay. Now we finally, uh, I finally have it right. Uh, okay. Shai, the, um, the, the question of, of the identity and the, uh, of the Palestinian people, of the, um, the uniqueness of them, first of all, I think that it's important that we define terms and uh, as a way of taking a look at the history. And my understanding is that the term Palestine was affixed by the Roman Emperor Hadrian after the defeat of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, when uh, when Judea attempted to become sovereign in a war against Rome, Rome had become extremely oppressive at that point. Um, the, uh, the the war went on for about three years, where Israel was able to obtain a very difficult sovereignty. Uh, after the victory by Hadrian and a massacre of the Jews, Hadrian believed that he had ended the Jewish people. He had ended Judea as an entity, and he mockingly renamed the province Palestina after the ancient enemies of the Israelites, those being the Philistines. He renamed Jerusalem Aliyah Capitolina, rebuilt it as a Roman city, and put a statue of and a, uh, a place of worship for the, the Greek god Zeus at the site of the temple. Um, is that an accurate depiction of how the, the origins of the term Palestine? Yes, minor corrections. Yeah, that's basically right, Chuck. Uh, it was a war that lasted from the year 132 to 135, which was the second revolt. The first one uh, had ended in the year 69 or 70 when the first temp- second temple was destroyed. And after uh, an intervening 60 years, the Jews tried again to throw off the Romans who had been ruling uh, Judea, as they called it, for 200 years. And as punishment for their second revolt, which was there's nothing like it in the history of the Roman Empire, uh, Hadrian says, not only am I going to destroy your state and your freedom, I'm going to destroy you and remove you from memory. So he renamed what they had called for two centuries Judea, which is the origin of the word Jew, and called it Palestina after the Philistines, who the Jews had vanquished and driven from history six, seven hundred years earlier. Likewise, Jerusalem was renamed Ilia Capitolina, 
The Ilia was his family's name, and the Capitolina referred to what was the triune gods of the Capitoline gods in Rome at the time to turn it into a, a pagan site. Yes, you got it right, pretty much. Okay, and uh, and the of course the second rebellion against the um, the Romans was not the last rebellion. The last one happened in 610. Uh, in the common era when you had an uprising against the Byzantines who were uh, in many ways even more oppressive than the pagan Romans uh, in that they were very stridently Christian um, and that they were backed by the Sassanian uh, Empire, which was uh, Persia. And there was Mm -hmm. about approximately 10 years of sovereignty under Sassanian sponsorship at that time. Uh, eventually, that that rebellion was also overrun by the um, Byzantine Emperor Heraclius, who went in and slaughtered the Jews um, in a way that had never been done before. Fifteen years after Heraclius, of course, you then had the the Arab invasion under under Abu Bakr, and the uh, eventually um, I think it was uh, 650 is my my dates here, uh, Israel or or Palestina became part of the um, of the Radishan Caliphate. Is that, well, is that an accurate history there? A little less accurate than the previous one, but pretty good. The, um, when we talk about Rome as the last revolt in 132, 135, of course, then Rome splits. And when we talk about the Byzantine Empire, we're talking about the Eastern, so the terminology is a little different. But it's true, Byzantium came and took over, but there's also the play, uh, the role played by the Persian Empire. And it was the Persians and the right. Byza- and, and the Byzantines who the, the Sassanians as they're and, and Sassanians, uh, as they're called that period in uh, the history of the country. Those two uh, fought for like thirty years and beat each other's brains out. And as a result of the two of them, like two boxers knocking each other out simultaneously in a ring, they both uh, so wrecked each other. They 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 opened up a vacuum, and into that vacuum came in the year six thirty eight the first Muslims. Muhammad had uh, died in 632, and Abu Bakr was the uh, caliph, and uh, that, that's when they first moved into Jerusalem. And when they got there, they discovered that everybody was calling it Elia, and they didn't call it anything but Elia for the next 500 years. Uh, not until the Crusader period did they change it to the current name that they use in Arabic, Al-Quds, which is a cognate of the Hebrew word Kodesh. And it's really a short form for Al-Beta Makdas in Arabic, which means the holy temple of Suleiman, which is their mispronunciation of uh, Shlomo Solomon in English. But that's when the Muslim period begins, starting in 638, 640. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I think it should be noted that in between the uh, Byzantines and the uh, Sassanians, the, uh, the Jews of, uh, of Palestine were able to obtain a level of sovereignty. Uh, so For a uh, short just, uh, period, to, yes. To make the point. That's right. And, and I'm only making this point to show yeah. that uh, there's a very strong Jewish presence there in the in the seventh century, um, yes. enough so that um, that they were able to to wield uh, you know a relatively sovereign um, life, uh, even though it was a difficult one during that time. There's not a lot known about it. So then we have the uh, the Caliphate takeover, as you say, under under Abu Bakr after the Battle of the Yarmouk, and uh, the uh, the Jews of um, of Palestina actually welcomed the uh, the Muslims in because the uh, the Byzantines had been so oppressive, mm-hmm. and that the second the second caliph Omar 
Um, he allowed for the first time the Jews, well, not for the first time, maybe the first time in 15 years, I should say, uh, the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Seventy families returned. They established a Jewish community in Jerusalem in what we now call the Jewish quarter uh, of, the, uh, of the old city. He also um, authorized uh, Jewish uh, artisans to help build what we now call the Dome of the Rock. And there is some evidence that the Dome of the Rock very well might have been a synagogue. Uh, well, the, there's no doubt that uh, when the confrontation between Jews and Muslims um, uh, 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 began in Jerusalem, yes, the Muslims were different than the, than the Byzantines. It's, it was the first time in history, but it also happened again when the Muslims invaded Spain uh, in the year 711. And there, too, the Jews welcomed them because they were suffering terribly uh, from the uh, uh, Catholics at that point. This is apart from the Inquisition, which comes, you know, hundreds of years later. This was and the, so yeah, the, the Visigothic period. In the Visigothic period, precisely, uh, the Visigoths actually treated the Jews quite well for about 150 years, but then when their whole sect, they were Aryan Christians, without a Y but an I, after Arias, and they, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they were pretty good to the Jews, but then they uh, converted to Roman Catholicism in the year 595, and then uh, oh, everything hit the fan in Spain. It was one of the worst periods in Jewish history. And so there's this uh, uh, period of t time when the Muslims were, were good to Jews in Jerusalem as well. Uh, only things turned sour when the Jews ultimately rejected Muhammad as the final and greatest prophet of all. And uh, for the first year of Islam, uh, he had people praying in the direction of Jerusalem, not Mecca. But when the Jews rejected uh, Muhammad, he got very angry and he turned on them and had everybody face Mecca as they do to this day. And then the Quran is a record of battles uh, of his march back to conquer Mecca and the bad guys uh, again and again, and all the battles are the Jews. Now, the, uh, the in this, we're now talking about, and by the way, my guest is Shai Ben Tekoa, uh, Phantom Nation. Again, well, the book I have listed here is Phantom Nation. That, that, that's what I'm looking at here, Shai, so I apologize if I got the name wrong. Uh, all right. The, um, okay. The, we're talking about the life of Muhammad and my my understanding of the Quran is that um, there seems to have, it seems to be almost two separate books. There seems to be a first half and a second half. In the first half of the Quran, the attitude is a, a complete recognition of Israel as a Jewish state. Um, you have uh, a call for the Jewish people, the people of the book, which is what Islam calls the Jews, yeah. to return to their land so they can set the stage for the coming of the Messiah. It's very similar to what Christians view as well in the New Testament, this yeah. idea of, of, of Judaism as being the parent religion and that, uh, and that we are to facilitate them in every way possible to return to the promised land. So Except, that, uh, Chuck, the, 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 Quran is, the, the, the Quran is an anti-Semitic tract. Um, the hatred for the Jews well, wait, is wait, wait, wait. I'm getting essential. To that. Yeah, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that well, because this is I don't the spend much time in on my book. My book is really about the modern era from the 19th century on. Okay. I touch on we'll, we'll, we'll just brief. move on then. We'll, we'll move on. Yeah. I just want to make this point. The second half of the Quran, there's a 180-degree turn. There is the most viciously anti-Semitic language that I think is, exists where there's a call for a complete wipeout of the Jews and in the worst terms the Jews are described in the ugliest terms possible. And I think that that correlates what you're saying um, – Shy about uh, the the change in attitude when the Jews refused to accept um, Muhammad's uh, ministry. So we have the two dueling ideas. Now let's bring things up to the present time. Uh, 
you have basically at around the time of the Ottoman Empire, after Suleiman the Magnificent took over the region from the Fatimids, uh, you have you know, an area that had no particular identity at all. It was part of South Syria. Um, you know, in fact, uh, I've seen language from um, Faisal ben Hussein, who was the uh, viewed as the uh, you know the penultimate Arab leader uh, in the Arab Revolt, and who was the first king of uh, Syria and then Iraq, and who signed a peace treaty with Israel, with Chaim Weizmann, by the way, recognizing Israel. Yeah, this is all. To, this is all in my book. We, I cover this period. This is all in my book. My book begins right. really with, with Golda Meir's statement in 1969, when she became prime minister. Uh, that there was no Palestinian people in the past, and everybody got very uh, unhappy because in the late 60s they were, in, they were uh, saying that there was such a thing, and uh, she really was like the dentist who struck a nerve, and that's when my book takes off, and I spent some time running up to the presence of the Jews in the 19th century when the Arabs did not have in their heads, as you suggest here, uh, a concept of Palestine. There's no Palestine in the Quran. The contemporary usage of Palestine well, well, yeah. in Arabic is is something that they only picked up in in the 20th century with the Balfour Declaration. Before that, they called it in Arabic Bilad Asham. Uh, when the World War ended, uh, First World War, and they had a peace conference in Paris and just starting in January 1919, uh, the idea was to create a Palestine which did not exist ever under the Muslims. Okay, we're going to take a break here. My guest is Shai Ben Tepoa, Phantom Nation. He's calling it from Israel. We'll be right back. While Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama have been in Washington trying to legislate an economy, I've been all over America working to improve the economy one family at a time with the three-step plan home business system. Hi, how in the world are you anyway? I'm Andy Willoughby. Thousands of enterprising Americans have changed their own financial futures by starting a business from their kitchen table. Most began part-time using their personal computers, telephones, and a belief in the American dream to carve out a stable business in a stormy business climate. They are housewives, truck drivers, downsized executives, health professionals, and even a lawyer or two. You could earn extra money or even replace your job. Technology advances have made this simpler and more efficient. So don't wait another 10 years. Check out the 3-Step Plan. Go to 3stepusa.com. That's 3stepusa.com or call 800-480-2102. 800-480-2102. Okay, so you own a business and cash is tight. So what do you do when you need funds? Go to a bank? <laughs> yeah, right. Waste a lot of time, send tons of paperwork only to find out you need to personally guarantee your home, firstborn, and everything in between. Or you can just call the Business Funding Group. Yeah, it's fast and simple with a 95% approval rate and cash for any business purpose. Equipment, inventory, expansion, cash flow, payroll. Grab a pen or put this number in your cell phone, but call 1-800-684-5434. That's 1-800-684-5434. When you call, you'll find out how to quickly and easily get the cash you need, up to $1 million with no collateral, no app or upfront fees, and your credit rating is not a factor. Plus approvals in 12 hours and funds in two to three days. Call the Business Funding Group at 1-800-684-5434. That's 1-800-684-5434. This is by far the fastest and best business loan you can possibly get. Call 1-800-684-5434 now. 
This is a special news alert to consumers who owe back taxes to the IRS. Due to the financial hardship consumers are facing during the decline in the U.S. economy, the Internal Revenue Service is now accepting reduced settlements from consumers on back taxes, resulting in back taxes reduced by thousands of dollars. An open phone line has been established by Federal Tax Relief for consumers to call and see if you qualify for this reduction. To ensure your financial stability during this decline in the economy, take down this number or store it in your cell phone, but call one 800 432-0360. That's 1-800-432-0360. If you owe back taxes to the IRS, there's no need to fear anymore. The IRS is now accepting reduced settlements from consumers, resulting in tax debts reduced by thousands of dollars. For your free information and to see if you qualify for your reduction, call the Federal Tax Relief Hotline, 1-800-432-0360. 1-800-432-0360. That's 1-800-432-0360. You have a mortgage and a load of other debt. Wouldn't it be great if it all just went away? Nine-year mortgage can change your life. We paid off all of our bills. All your debt, including your mortgage, in as little as nine years? We will have saved over $313,000 in interest payments. Even have more money left over each month? It lowered our monthly payments by a little over $500. Nine-year mortgage. <laughs> Where have they been all of our life? If you knew about something like that, you'd want to tell everybody. Whenever I have a friend or someone that needs this service, I give them the number. Hi, I'm Larry Ruff, president of Nine Year Mortgage. This is unlike anything you've ever seen before, and it will absolutely not harm your credit. Call for your free CD and learn how you can eliminate all of your debt, including your mortgage, much sooner than you ever dreamed possible. The more debt you have, the more we can help. Call for your free CD now, 800-383-5310. This works. Call the number. Call now for your free CD, 800-383-5310, 800-383-5310. Author, journalist, and American patriot. This is Chuck Morse Speaks. Thank you very much. My guest is Shai Ben Tekoa from Israel, Phantom Nation, Inventing the Palestinians, quote, and the Obstacle to Peace. Uh, we're talking about the history of the Palestinian movement and the use of the term. Um, at the uh, Faisal Al Hussein signed, it, signed the um, the uh, Faisal Weitzman Agreement in January of 1918. He was the head of the uh, Arab delegation. 1919, thank you. He, he was the head of the Arab delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. Weitzman was the head of the Zionist delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. And the agreement was one by which Husseini, uh, Husseini, that's another guy, um, Faisal called for the return of the Jews, uh, welcoming them back to their homeland, I think his hope was, according to both his uh, agreement and a letter that he wrote to Felix Frankfurter, who was at the time dean of Harvard Law School, was that a modern sovereign state of Israel, existing in modest borders and protecting and, and respecting the Arab minority and the Muslim holy places, would serve as a partner to the emerging Arab states. Uh, he was very forward-thinking. He was hoping that the Jews would bring into the region ideas of democracy and modern economy and technology, and that he wanted to partner with the Jews against the uh, European imperialists. Of course, uh, he was undone by the fact that the Europeans conspired and plotted to take over the Arab countries, which became apparent shortly after he signed that agreement. And he said that as long as the European occupiers continue to try to deny Arab sovereignty, then the whole deal is off. 
But, of course, the Europeans were driven out of the Middle East, mainly by both Israel and the Arabs. And then, in fact, Israel was one of the first nations to strike a blow against European imperialism, and they should have inspired the Arabs, and I think did inspire the Arabs in the same way. But to get the, to get to the point here, the term Palestine was resurrected by the British after the defeat of and the, the Ottoman Empire, who sided with. Yeah, it described Jews. I mean, it was the it was supposed yes. to be the Jewish state all, of Palestine. Chuck, it's all of this. All of this, including the Faisal Weizmann yeah. agreement, in in its entirety, is found in my book. I cover this period extensively, and it leads up to the modern period. Again, the subtitle of the book is Inventing the Palestinians as the Obstacle to Peace, not and the Obstacle to Peace. That's why they were invented, to block peace, which was called for in Resolution 242 of 1967. At that point in Resolution 242 of 67, there was no reference to Palestinians whatsoever. They were not part of the, uh, of the dialogue. There's no reference in my research, which, I, which is the launch pad for this book, there's no reference to Palestinians in U.N. documentation until 1970. I read 870 U.N. Right. resolutions from 1945 to 1989. I did a statistical survey, which was commissioned by the uh, Office of the Prime Minister of Israel. And while I'm doing that particular work, I kept my eye out for the debut performance of the Palestinians in U.N. documentation. And it comes in December of 1970 in a U.N. resolution. And it was in direct uh, response to Golda Meir's remark of the year before that there was no such thing as Palestinians. And ever since then, Israel has been accused of being a racist, fascist, imperialist country, which has denied the existence of the putatively paleolithic Palestinian people. And my book shows this is all nonsense, and it lays it out pretty much in a, chron a chronicle uh, of over the entire uh, span of the uh, Zionist and Israeli history. And that's what it deals with, how the Palestinian fantasy of a phantom nation was invented to uh, block the peace that was required in Resolution 242. And this is what my book covers right. prim primarily no, and, in the 60s and, you do and the brilliant... 70s and the 80s. Excuse me? And you do a great job. I mean, in, in a sense, the, uh, the, the Arabs hijacked the term Palestine from the Jews yes, because before 1948... Exist, that's right. Before 1948... Was, That's right. They, I mean, it was the region was called the Mandate of Palestine, which was supposed to be the homeland of the that, Jews, Chuck, according to the Balfour book, Declaration. This is, this is what I'm an expert on. The book shows mm -hmm. that for the first 40 years after the uh, League of Mandate was signed in 1922, the position of the ads was that there is no such place as Palestine. There are no Palestinians. Uh, the only Palestinians in 1948 were people who were Jewish. Zionists call themselves Palestinians. Right. In Leon, Leon U.S. Right. book I mean, in the 1959, term... Exodus, he uses the term Palestinian to describe the secular Zionist exclusively. The Arabs then were called Arabs, and they denied vigorously for 40 years there's no such place as Palestine, and they were right. In Arab Muslim history oh, I mean, the centuries, evidence... there was no Philistine. They called it Bilad Hasham. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the evidence is clear. I know that my great-aunt Dorothy used to have a gigantic coffee table book called Palestine, and then under it was written the land of, the, of Israel. So, I mean, before right. 1948, Palestine was describing the Jews. We were returning to Palestine. It was upon independence that, uh, that David Ben-Gurion declared the name Israel in the same way that a lot of nations changed their name upon independence. Correct. It's like Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. You know, I mean, Burma became Myanmar. Okay, we're going to take another break here. We'll be right back.
this is absolutely true what you're saying, Chuck. Uh, they had no name for it. They never have any name for it. The fact that they used the term West Bank, capital W, capital B, is proof there never was a Palestinian people because if there was, they would have had a name for this area, and they never did. When the Jordanians overran Judea and Samaria, which is the names that you see on maps for hundreds of years, they didn't know what to call it. Sure. And so it was called until 1967, the Western Bank, lowercase w, lowercase b. That's how the New York Times described it. And I show they had to invent this, and it's, uh, it's more proof. I have about a half a dozen maps in my book from encyclopedias of uh, 1917, mostly from Spain and Sweden, France, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which make perfectly clear that at this moment as we speak, Chuck, it's hard to believe, but classical Palestine is divided between four states at this very moment. Four of them have a peace. Three of them are Arabs. One of them is Israel. And the Arabs have 53% of classical Palestine. If there had been a Palestinian people, they would have known that uh, the, most of the land is in the hands of the capitals in Beirut and Damascus and Amman. If they want a state, they should ask those powers to hand over the 53% they're, they're sitting in. West Bank was, is a total invention, and it serves in our time like the numbers burnt into Jewish arms at Auschwitz. It's meant to take away – those numbers were to take away our human names and give us – like serial numbers, like we were diseased cattle that had to be destroyed. And what happens with West Bank is it covers over Judea and Samaria, which are on all the maps. I have a map, I didn't put it in my book, mm -hmm. of the 1969 Rand McNally map, which shows the conquest of Israel in 67, shows the areas that Israel took over, the Golan Heights, Judea and Samaria, and um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula. But the, way, the words West Bank don't appear in 1969 in that version. What you do see is Judea and Samaria, which is on all the maps throughout history. So when you're talking West Bank, sure. you're talking anti-Semitism. You're talking about calling this place right. with a no-name name in order to deprive it, from, deprive it from the Jews. We are Jews because we come from Judea. That was the name. And this business of West Bank is just anti-Semitism in modern dress. Right. I mean, the terms Judea and Samaria are as generic to the region as the term New England is to Massachusetts. I mean, it's just what it's always been called. Now, in uh, also the founder of the PLO, before Arafat, his name escapes me right now, he mentioned, and he was on record as stating, Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. Now, the fact of the matter is that the original British mandate of Palestine did consist of what we now in modern times call Israel and Jordan. And uh, what happened was that uh, Winston Churchill, who was the Undersecretary of um, Foreign Affairs in Great Britain at the time, which was administering the, the British mandate, he divided yep. the mandate into two pieces using the Jordan River as the dividing line. There was Transjordan and there was Cisjordan. Transjordan eventually Correct. achieved independence as yep. the kingdom of Jordan in 1947, yes, 1946. Cisjordan yeah, became Israel. What, Winston Churchill, Winston Cisjordan Churchill became was, Israel in 48. Let me correct you. Winston Churchill was the colonial secretary. And in March of 1921, okay. meeting in Cairo with 50 and eminent men. To go to peace. Uh, so, Shai, what you have then is uh, Jordan is Palestine, based upon the comments of the founder of the PLO, they are the same well, people as the uh, right. Arabs of Israel. Let me correct this terrorist. The real Palestine is not the mandatory map. The real Palestine found right. in the encyclopedias uh, and atlases for all of history 
is a synonym for Eretz Yisrael as found in the book of Genesis, in which it's described in words. And that authentic Palestine is divided today between four states, and the bulk of that is in Arab hands. Now, I wouldn't put too much uh, 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 importance in what these, these people say, because they're lousy in their battlefield ethics, they're murderers, and when it comes to historiography, they know better at that either. Uh, Jordan has a... No, piece, I hear you. Maybe I mean, about 15... Hmm? Jordan has about a 15%. I only bring it. I, I, yeah. yeah. Jordan is about 15% of classical Eretz Yisrael. But it is Eretz Yisrael. And uh, th that's what has to be emphasized. My book deals mostly, though, with how the mainstream media, the liberals, the New York Times in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, invented this phony baloney Palestinian nationalist movement, which is this generation's variety of anti Semitism, because it's really the flip side of the Holocaust denial. Palestinian nationalism and Holocaust denial are two sides of the same coin. They are both rewriting history. Okay. Holocaust denial deletes from history events that took place. Palestinian nationalism events events that never happened. That's why they're cousins, and it's always an attempt to destroy the Jewish people. That's what's important. My book is how this latest fantasy about Jewish skullduggery was invented, the narrative as it is now, is that we Jews marched in after the Holocaust and stole Palestine from the Palestinians when there's not a drop of truth to that statement. It's called the Palestinian narrative, and the very term was invented by Edward Said, who also is important in my book. I was a student of his before mm -hmm. the Six-Day War when he said uh, that he was, a, he was a Lebanese Christian who grew up in Cairo, which was the absolute truth. There was nothing Palestinian about the man except that he happened to be born in Jerusalem because the par his parents were visiting. That's all. He was one of the great inventors of this notion that everybody has a history and you can't argue with their version. Everybody has their narrative, the Zionist narrative, the Palestinian narrative, and they're all equal. Right, okay. And also, by the way, Arafat was Egyptian. He was born in Cairo. Of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel actually is exactly the parameters where Israel exists today. No. From Dan in the north, wait a minute, let me finish. From Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, from the Jordan River to the Great Sea, when Moses uh, was not allowed to cross into the land of Israel by God because he did not cross the Jordan River, even though two and a half tribes stayed on the east bank of the Jordan, nevertheless, they were viewed as outside of Eretz Israel. Eretz Israel's borders were clearly delineated in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, that's exactly where Israel is today, with the one exception of a strip of desert south of Beersheba that stretches to the to the uh, Gulf of, to the port of Elad, and that's called the Negev. But I mean, no, I just you're missing think the that northern Israel tier is... of Palestine. You're missing the northern tier. Go to Genesis chapter nine after the great flood. Sidon, Sidon, which is in Lebanon today, it's mentioned there at the right. end. I think chapter forty-eight, forty-nine, as the patriarch Jacob is divvying up the uh, inheritance for his sons. He again mentions Sidon as where Zvulon who will be an import-export or a merchant. Uh, okay. Sidon is north, southern Lebanon today is as much Eretz Yisrael as Tel Aviv. And you're correct about Beersheba. This is true. Uh, Beersheba, the line between Be under Beersheba or north of it just slightly, running from the tip of the southern tip of the, of the Dead Sea to the coast around Al-Rafiach these days, that is the southern border of Eretz Yisrael. However, there are halachic problems, which we can't get into now, regarding what's on the East Bank. Uh, it's a it's a complicated problem. In any case, throughout right. But history, the point is that the land that the, right and the, the the land that the the good Lord showed uh, Abraham 
is between the Jordan River and the sea. I mean, you can make the argument no, he's, for he's uh, looking the in southern both, Lebanon. He looks in, all di- he looks in all directions. For the Yama, Kedma, Mizracha, there are four different directions that are described there. That's Eretz Yisrael. In any case, most important rather than the specific In, in any case, the, I, there is I base no Palestinian the, people, the, the, and that's what's important. I understood, and, and I want to get to that, that but I, I base my contentions on Deuteronomy's uh, description of the exact yes, borders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, that's, that's right. And then, yeah, you could, I suppose Genesis. you could. Fine. You Genesis could include Sidon, which is just. I get it, which is just a southern piece of Lebanon, but nevertheless, Dan, which is seen as the northernmost point, that is in Matula, which is in the northernmost point of the state of Israel today. Yeah, that's not the All right, Dan now I want to move on to. It's not the Dan in the Bible. Yeah. I, oh, it's not. All right, well, I think that's something that's debatable. This is a, this archaeology is a side indicates. Issue. This is a side issue. It I'm is. And, and archaeology indicates that the... In our generation, te- which is called the Palestinian narrative. And how... Okay, and, and then archaeology indicates that Tel Dan is where... I agree, where yeah. Matula is. Now, I want to talk about the origins of the modern Palestinian movement. There was a Palestinian terrorist by the name of Abu Iyad. I'm sure you know who he is. He was in the PLO. He was a major figure. He reports in his autobiography, which has not been translated into English, that he was invited along with a Palestinian PLO delegation to visit Hanoi in the right. 1970s, where they met with communist uh, leaders in Hanoi. They wanted to ask the North Vietnamese how it is that their movement had become so popular with the international left and that it became popular on college campuses why does everyone hate the Palestinians? They're trying to garner that kind of favor. And the, uh, the, the North Vietnamese told them two things. They said, first of all, you've got to ramp down the rhetoric about slaughtering all the Jews and driving them into the ocean. That's not going to make you popular. Instead, talk about things like liberation and talk about things like uh, oppression. Yes, and then Chuck, the second the thing was... In my book deals with this very issue, only it's not for Vietnam. Okay, all right, let me just it's finish Algeria, my thought here. The sec- it's Algeria. That's right. The second the second half of the uh, recommendations by the North Vietnamese communists was to call for a so-called two-state solution, take half of it now, and then eventually push the rest of the cow over later. And it was shortly after the, those meetings in Hanoi that Arafat arrived at the U.N. with a gun strapped to his holster, which, of course, is something that they're not supposed to do, but they let him do it, and he launched this propaganda campaign about the so-called two-state solution. So, Shai, you have information about that in your book? Go ahead. Yes, and it's got nothing to do with North of Mies. The longest chapter in my book deals with the revolution from 1954 to 1962 in Algeria when there was a revolt against the French who had ruled there from since 1830. This was the, uh, the number one third world revolution that uh, attracted everybody's attention in the 1950s, and it was on the basis of that that Abu Iyad fell in love with the language. You're on the right track. What they... All right, sorry about this. We've got one more break here. By the way, you're welcome to stay on. You know, we have a, we're just start, scratching the surface here. We'll be right back. Hold on. 
This is a special news alert to consumers who owe back taxes to the IRS. Due to the financial hardship consumers are facing during the decline in the U.S. economy, the Internal Revenue Service is now accepting reduced settlements from consumers on back taxes, resulting in back taxes reduced by thousands of dollars. An open phone line has been established by Federal Tax Relief for consumers to call and see if you qualify for this reduction. To ensure your financial stability during this decline in the economy, take down this number or store it in your cell phone, but call one 800 432-0360. That's 1-800-432-0360. If you owe back taxes to the IRS, there's no need to fear anymore. The IRS is now accepting reduced settlements from consumers, resulting in tax debts reduced by thousands of dollars. For your free information and to see if you qualify for your reduction, call the Federal Tax Relief Hotline, 1-800-432-0360. 1-800-432-0360. That's 1-800-432-0360. Chuck Morse speaks. Thank you very much. And uh, Shai Ben Sakoa is my guest, Phantom Nation, advancing the quote Palestinians as the obstacle to peace. It's a two sided coin. Fat is the Arabic Muslim word for conquest of the infidel, because all of these eight who, crowned it, who created Fatah had been Muslim brothers. This was the way they perceived the world. Only four of them had really. Uh, been so taken up with the events in Algeria, they had thrown off Islam and become Marxist-Leninists. So there was a debate in the organization of eight of them mm -hmm. what to call their group. And they came up with Fatah, because Fatah means conquest of the infidel. And when you reverse the letters, you get an acronym of Palestine Liberation Organization. So both sides were happy. They learned from these Algerians how to talk to the West. And that's why Arafat always appeared in that green field jacket of his. That's Fidel Castro's uh, constant costume. It was an imitation of Castro when 59 became a famous guy in the world for throwing out Batista. And so from, from then on, Arafat would never appear in anything but that jacket. 5310, 800-383-5310. Boston conservative in the cradle of liberty. You'll want to listen when Chuck Moore speaks on the Information Radio Network. Thank you very much. And my guest is Shai Bentakoa, Phantom Nation, inventing the quote Palestinians as the obstacle to peace, is the name of the book, exclusively available at Amazon and Amazon Kindle. Uh, Shai, uh, thanks for staying on with me a bit. We were talking in the earlier segment about the we're up to the modern invention of the Palestinian movement uh, and how it's so influenced by the communist left. I yes. think there's evidence that, for example, El Fata, which is the founding cell of the, what we now call the PLO, was trained, financed, and, uh, and developed in Moscow. Literally, they went to Moscow. They were trained at Lumumba University. You had Arafat and the rest of them, and sometime in the 1960s, yeah. the early no, 60s, and you had them on the payroll of the uh, of the Soviet Union right up through the 1970s. Uh, in 1973, Yevgeny Primakov, the head of the uh, 
Soviet KGB had a meeting at a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon called the Badawi Camp, where he devised the strategy for not only the PLO, but the uh, all of the communist, quote, Arab cells in the Middle East, and that was to use terror. To use well, terror they were using terror. of creating world revolution. They were using terror in the 1930s. Oh, yeah, sure. They were. They've always been using oh, no, terror. They were using terror since day one. I get that. But the okay. point is it became a formal financed policy of the Soviet well, Union. Well, let me give you some of the history sure. here, which seems to be uh, uh, unknown. Um, the, the PLO was created by Nasser uh, in 1964 to compete with the Fatah. The Fatah was then was based in Syria. And Syria and Egyptian and Egypt have been at each other's throats for control of the land between, namely Eretz Yisrael, since the beginning of time. And so Nasser created the PLO to compete with Fatah. That was in '64. By 1969, Arafat has co-opted uh, the PLO and taken it over. The PLO was a group, a syndicate of 12 to 18 at a certain point terror groups. Among them, the second largest was the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, whose head was Dr. George Habash, who was born in Ramleh, uh, here in Israel, and uh, he was a Marxist-Leninist, and he, as you uh, seem to, you know, he, he was the one who was most supported by Moscow, and his specialty were the spectacular airline hijackings. Uh, a splinter from his group was the DFLP by the Nayef Khawatma, who, like him, was a, a, a native, he was a uh, Christian, a Greek Orthodox, and uh, these guys were the second and third groups in the PLO. Fatah was the one at the top. What made Fatah unique was that they were killing more Jews than anybody else, number one. Number two, they were more or less independent. Uh, the the, the uh, other two groups were completely uh, being funded and trained by Moscow. But by the end, the PLO did have training groups in Russia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and at the end of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union collapsed, those new governments kicked them out real fast. They didn't like them. And to this day, those Eastern European countries are, are pro-Israel. Uh, the, the PLO hmm. uh, was taken over, as I say, in 69 by Arafat. He co-opted it and became the head simultaneously, like Abu Mazen is today, simultaneously the head of Fatah and the, and the head of the PLO. And in fact, the so-called Palestinian Authority to this day is really a, a, a wholly owned subsidiary of the PLO. All of their major pronouncements uh, do, uh, are, are put out under the PLO uh, headline and not uh, the P Palestinian Authority headline. So we're really dealing with the PLO, which was this syndicate of terror gangs who were determined to destroy Israel. And most important to remember, and especially for my book, is that they were founded, uh, Fatah and the PLO, before the Six-Day War. In other words... All of right. this terror has been going on since before then, and in a way, Judea and Samaria have nothing to do with their war against us. They don't. That's that's a secondary issue for them because most of the Fatah people uh, and uh, uh, PLO people came from the areas that Israel controlled between 1949 and 1967. The worst nightmare of the PLO and the Fatah in the 60s and 70s was an independent state in Judea and Samaria for the Arabs living here where I live, mm -hmm. uh, that, that they didn't want to see that because that would mean that the refugees of 1948-49 would be cut off and cut out and not get anything. And they murdered people here, the PLO, in those years, all, those who wanted an independent Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank and Gaza, because that was their nurse, worst nightmare. 
And since that time, they have not changed their philosophy, their doctrine from day one. They cannot tolerate the existence of a Jewish state. And that's because at bottom, they all remain active Muslims and Muslim brothers. And all of this stuff about Palestinian nationalism and national liberation and all that stuff, it's all gingerbread on the top to disguise the fact that they are Muslims and Islam is inherently anti-Jew and cannot tolerate Jews ruling again independently in the land of Israel. It is a complete contradiction to Islam. As opposed to the Christians, who have become big supporters, some of them the evangelicals, because two-thirds of their Bible is the Jewish Bible, and many of these millions of supportive American and English evangelical Christians have no problem in their theology dealing with the resurrection of Jewish sovereignty in Eretz Yisrael. They can applaud it and support it. Versus the Muslims, who simply cannot tolerate the existence of a Jewish state. It turns their entire philosophy into tatters. It's a direct assault uh, on Islam, and they won't stand for it. Still well, there? Uh, <laughs> you know, Shai, you know, I, I am. I mean, you know, what you're describing here, then, if what you're saying is true, and I think it's at least partially true, mm. is that Israel is going to be in a perpetual and eternal war against Islam. Until the Islam changes, the and it can change. Yeah, and I think there are elements within Islam, as I illustrated earlier, that do accept the state of Israel, and there are Muslims who do. I, would uh, point I can't agree, I can't agree with the, that. Those Muslims who do agree, all right, well, you, can count, you can count on the fingers of both hands. And I so fine, know some of the them personally. They don't represent the billion and a half. I mean, I, they don't represent the, the billion and a half Muslims in the world in the least. No, they They're don't, all but the point is that... I get all that, but I from Islam the because they will be murdered if they stay home and talk the way they do. I, I, I because Islam has been taken over by terrorism, uh, particularly is tinged with uh, both national socialist in the 1930s and 40s and international socialist today. Now I they want were, to ask you: They were persecuting Jews on a daily basis before Marxism came into the world. They have been persecuting Jews on a well, daily basis since the days of Muhammad, because it's required by the Quran. So, Jews are so oppressed. Were, so were the, so the, the Christians. Christian it's different. Nations, but the, it's different. The Christians well, in 1965 look, in Rome changed their doctrine. Yeah, Islam and, has never and changed basically their doctrine. there are elements. Yeah, they, they, I would say it's not so much changed their doctrine. I, I would say it's emphasized. Yes, they did. It. The, the papal bull of 1965 aspects. changed Roman Catholic doctrine. I get that, and to, I would argue that with regard to Islam, th there can be an emphasis on aspects of their doctrine that do recognize the state of Israel. Now, Not I want now. to bring things up to the modern times. All right, yeah. well, I think you know we'll, we'll move on to a more modern situations. Okay. Um, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, in 1983, after, or 1985, I believe, after the complete defeat of the PLO in Lebanon, where they, where they were driven out, they went into exile, they went to Tunis. Yes, uh, that's They correct. were utterly just, you know, beaten back. He yes. invited them back into Israel. He put Arafat as head of the, P, uh, of the Palestinian Authority. He armed them. He financed correct. them. I think this was a policy that was so bizarre and so yes. wrong it was probably one of the only times in world history where I can think of a nation inviting their enemy after the enemy had been defeated back yeah. into power. It would have been like the United States inviting the Nazis back into Germany after World yes. War II. 
Exactly. It wasn't a 1985, Chuck. It wasn't a 1985. It was a 1993. Thank you very well, much. Well, in 1993, now, why, you had... I mean, Go ahead. I mean, my question to you is, I mean, yeah. I, I would think that uh, somebody like uh, like Rabin seems to me to be a loyal Israeli. I mean, he seemed to yes. be a patriot. He was born in yes. Israel. He was a Sabra. Yes. What the hell was going on there? Because he was not only that. He was the son of two of the most ardent communists in the Yishuv, as we refer to the community here of Jews before the rise of the state. Likewise, Shimon Peres brags in his autobiography about reading Karl Marx's Das Kapital instead of love letters, uh, love poetry to his future bride. These were ardent Marxist-Leninists, even communists. Not Leninists, but they were communists. And as communists, they hated religion in general and Judaism in particular. In my book, you, the readers can learn that Rabin used to joke about the leaders when he was only chief of staff of the army, of Levi Eshkol, who was the prime minister, how he and others spoke with a Yiddish accent, and he would mock them and call them the Jews, as opposed to the Israelis. The secular, in particular, leftist, hard leftist Zionists, who led the way into statehood, looked upon Zionism as not the way to rescue the Jewish people, but to leave them behind, and to transform the Jews into a new Jew, which was their expression, Yudi Hadash, who would be very different than Jews. They wouldn't believe in all that nonsense, which Marx said is the opium of the people, and so the, 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 uh, the, the desire of Rabin and Perez in 1993 had several aspects to their desire to bring in Arafat. They were desperate for peace because they did not know anything. These are highly uneducated people. I can't emphasize that too much. While Jews are famous for having good educations, these two barely got out of junior high school and never had anything after that. They didn't know how to think. They had no information. And they wanted to make peace so that they could get out of Judea and Samaria because what happened with the capture of Judea and Samaria in 1967 was a religious revival here, which drove them crazy. Their position basically was, look, we didn't come here and built this country to be Jews. We came here to be Israelis, and Israelis don't believe in all this religious nonsense, and we're not going to fight over the Temple Mount, we're not going to fight over Jerusalem. It was Moshe Dayan, who was the uh, chief of staff, the defense minister, rather, in 67, who after the Temple Mount was taken by the IDF, handed it back to the Muslims. We're not going to fight over this. This is your nonsense. We're not interested. We want peace, and we'll give you it all peace. And what they wanted to do at the Oslo uh, uh, Accords, which were signed on the White House lawn on September 13, 1993, was to rid themselves of Judea and Samaria because, it, frankly, it was too Jewish. That's why they brought the PLO in. They wanted the, the, the creators of the Palestinian national identity were not only Arafat and his ilk of Muslim fundamentalists as a ruse, as a smokescreen, it was the Israeli and the Jewish left. They were desperate to be able to make an agreement with a parallel people. Tzipi uh, Livni has said this, Yossi Balin, who said this, who uh, was the architect of Oslo, said, if we define the problem here as a religious conflict, there'll be no solution, as you realized before. If, however, we define this conflict as a political solution between two nationalities, then we can have some kind of compromise and a sharing of the land, a condominium relationship. The problem was that on the other side, all of these ideas and concepts are meaningless. They don't know what you're talking about. They, they, they are Muslims who cannot tolerate the existence of the Jews living free here and ruling over Muslims. This is the great heresy. Islam requires Jews to be oppressed and humiliated, to live as second-class citizens, to have to pay a special tax to be able to continue to pray. It's called the Jezia tax. And Rabin and Perez were so anti-religion, they thought it was the big problem. Let's get rid of this religion nonsense, and we'll make a deal. 
So they brought the PLO in that Rabin had, that had been driven out by Ariel Sharon in 1982 from Lebanon. And he brought them back starting in 1994 in July. Arafat returned after the great expulsion in 1982 by the IDF. And ever since then, we've been stuck with this stupid and wicked, idiotic Oslo peace agreement with people who don't want to make peace with us. Okay, Shai, we've got another break here. We'll be right back. Shai ben is my guest. Thank you very much. And uh, my guest is Shai ben uh, Shai, look, I, I agree with much of what you're saying about the labor Zionist movement. It was anti-religious. It was certainly anti-Orthodox. There's language that you talk about, this kind of world order, secular language, that you can find in um, in the works of Theodor Herzl, in his, uh, yes. who was the founder of the first Zionist conference. But yet, at the same time, these people were not anti-Israel. I mean, they, they supported a strong vigorous Jewish state. Uh, you know, they were nationalists, at least. Uh, yes. They worked with uh, the other side from time to time. I mean, I don't understand how what their thinking was when they, they were turning over portions of Israel. After all, they're the ones who, who, who consolidated control over Judea and Samaria in 1966. They were the ones who started the settlements, the the, the cities and towns in no, let me correct Judea you on that. and Samaria. I have, to cor- I have to correct you on that, uh, Chuck. It was 1967 was the war, and for the next Thank ten you very much. okay, and, and the next ten years, with labor still in power as it had been from the beginning of the state in 1948, uh, for the next ten years there was very little, almost no settlements. They wanted to get rid of the area because it was too Jewish. Number one, number two, they didn't want to be responsible for the million plus Arabs here. They didn't want to, you know, have to take care of them and bring them into the state. So the, the the idea was to give back the land that we conquered, and even at and even at the idea even at the expense of uh, causing some uh, troubles strategically, they did not want to keep Judea and Samaria because the left in Israel had a nervous breakdown after '67 because half of the people who were identified with the left didn't want to give back the land because the whole the if you read the Declaration of Independence of Israel it begins with referencing the Bible. And these people all grew up with the Bible not as a holy text, but as Jewish history. And all of a sudden, in 1967, after six days of fighting, they find themselves in control of all of these famous places that they had been reading about all their lives. And so half of the left said, we can't give this back. It includes giving back the graves of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their, and their wives. We can't do that. This is the beginning of Judaism in Hebron. It's called the Cave of the Machpelah. We cannot give back Shiloh which is where the Ark of the Covenant lived, stood for 440 years. And so you had Steven Spielberg making his movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's the Ark. That Ark was there for 440 years. People said, we can't give back Shiloh, and so and, and so on and so forth. The tomb of Joseph, which is in Shechem. The tomb of Rachel, which is in uh, Bethlehem. Uh, so there was this split in the soul of the Israeli people about what to do with this land. But the radical leftists, Rabin and Perez and Balin and their academic uh, ilk, it was more important to them to get rid of these places with religious significance than it was to keep them, even at, the exp- even at risking the danger. They were not suicidal, so it never happened. Never happened. The, the Oslo ended, really, in July of 2000 at Camp David when Ehud Barak, who was a proud atheist, raised in one of the communes, became prime minister, and he offered Arafat just about everything. But he said, when I give you just about everything, you're going to have to sign off on end of conflict 
that language, and Arafat said nothing doing, because Barak called his bluff. In other words, say that we'll give you just Judea and Samaria back, and then you'll make peace with us. And he couldn't go for that because, again, the Fatah and the PLO were established before 67. They weren't thinking about Judea and Samaria in the least. These people want to go back to Haifa. They want to go back to Jaffa. They want to go back to Lud, Ramla, Nazareth. That's where they come from, Tzfat. Mabu Mazen is from Tzfat in the Galilee. And so the peace for them is just an impossibility because they, oh, their demands are not of this world. They're asking Israel to this very day to commit suicide. Uh, this is what Oslo was. Right. It was the attempt to, to, to have your cake and eat it too. I agree. I remember that. And I think that what happened was that when Barak, after Camp David, uh, Arafat launched the first intifada. Now, Correct. I want to bring things up to Sharon. I want to bring things up to Sharon's prime ministership Sharon handed the uh, Palestinian Authority, Gaza, Correct. on a silver platter. He stripped the region of its Jewish population, making it Juden Rhine. They funded yes. uh, the Palestinian Authority. Money poured in from all over the world. They, they, they helped train their police force. This was an opportunity for the Palestinian Arabs to create a sovereign state in Gaza that could have uh, been peaceful, could have lived alongside the state of Israel, and with more coming. And yet, instead, they turned it into a launching pad to act, acts of aggression against the state of Israel, launching up to 10,000 missiles. Correct, which should tell, now, you, um, which should tell yeah. you that they're not interested in a state. This is a fantasy invented by the Jewish left. As I say, Yossi Balin, C.P. Livni, they say, oh, the Palestinians, they invented this phony nation, and they invented also their desire for a state. They've never had a desire for the state. They have been offered a state uh, half a dozen times over the last 60 years and turned it down every time. A phantom nation inventing the, quote, Palestinians as the obstacle to peace. Uh, we brought things up to the, current, the present day. This past summer, of course, we saw the horrendous... Uh, instance of three uh, Israeli boys brutally murdered by Hamas, uh, and then Hamas launching a war against Israel with uh, 10,000 missiles and terror tunnels uh, from Gaza. Uh, the thing that shocked me the most about the whole situation was the degree to which the international left supported, openly supported Hamas, and that includes a lot of sort of useful idiots and nincompoops like uh, my fellow talk show host here, Tom Hartman, who uh, talked about the missiles as being firecrackers and talked about Gaza as a prison camp and using rhetoric that he literally was spoon-fed by propagandists from, uh, from Hamas, I would assume. Uh, and uh, I guess that this brings me to the present day here, Shai, which is to ask the great question that was posed by none other than Vladimir Lenin. And that is, what is to be done? What is to be done in Israel with regard to the non-Jewish minority that lives in Judea and Samaria? What is to be done with Gaza? Um, okay, uh, that's a fine question, and I will answer with my opinion only, obviously. Very simple. Thank you. Israel has been, has been since 1967... Sell, selling the world this line, that we have security interests, we're willing to make compromises. Bibi Netanyahu said he's ready for a Palestinian state with taking those conditions into, into account. And I say this is all nonsense. It's destructive. Nobody cares about our security interests, nor should they. 
because we are being challenged by people who say this is our ancient homeland which you stole from us. And it's that Israel has to combat and stop talking about security interests and start talking about our rights. I'm a veteran of the civil rights movement of the 1960s under Dr. Martin Luther King, a great man. The, the Israelis have never spoken of our rights to keep every square meter that we conquered in 1967 because we were attacked. This is the history of the world. This is the history of the United States of America. All of, not all, but much of the west of the United States of America was taken in a two-year war from the Mexicans. Uh, the California, Nevada, Colorado, these are all Spanish names, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Sacramento. This is all occupied Mexican territory, if you will. We have every right to keep this land, number one, because we took it away from an aggressor in self-defense. Two, the League of Nations granted it to us as, as a Jewish homeland. Three, it's, it's, it's essential to our religion. This is our land, and we have to claim it. As to what to do with the non-Jews living here, you must treat every one of them as an individual with respect. You must uh, uh, give him, you know, uh, afford him the opportunity to make a living, maybe belong, belong to an HMO, all kinds of goodies. What you do not give any of these people is the vote in our Knesset. Now, there's legislation in the Torah for this. Uh, it's called Gil Toshav, and really, in English, it's the resident alien status. Resident alien in the United States has all kinds of rights to live and work, etc., but they don't vote. Uh, there are 21 Arab states. Everyone has some kind of assembly or legislature, which is 100% Arab. We Jews are entitled to have our legislature, which is not un which should be 100% Jewish. It's not, but we'll live with that. We're not going to add any more voters. We offer them this deal. If they like it, they can stay and behave themselves. If they don't like it, they're free to leave. This is the history of mankind. This is the history of the United States. Only a third of the people made the U.S. Revolution. And at the end of it, a third of the people who didn't like it and want to stay subjects of the British crown left the country. They didn't like the new situation. Right. Here they're free to leave if they don't want, to, don't want to live with us under our terms. That's what we have to do. As for Gaza, this is a rectangle that's about 25 miles long, drive to 8 miles wide. Its entire existence is a fraud. There was never such a thing as the Gaza Strip in history. It's the creation of the uh, invasion of Eretz Israel in 1948 by the Egyptian army. They drew a line around the furthest advance with the ceasefire. They created eight refugee camps for these Arabs who were mostly migrant workers from all over the Arab world. Nothing Palestinian about them. And it's a situation. You've got, you're making some really interesting comments about uh, the destructive influence ultimately of the far left end of the uh, labor Zionists and what they've done to... Yes, in a sense, weaken Israel's position both in Israel and in the world by their very wrong-headed, perhaps well-meaning but demented ideas. Yes, um, we brought things up to the present time in a discussion of what to do now with Israel's non-Jewish population. I don't know if you know David Rubin; he's been a regular guest of mine, uh, the author of God Israel Shiloh, is a former mayor of Shiloh, and he suggests that uh, the uh, the Palestinian Arabs of Judea and Samaria be offered Israeli citizenship and uh, offered it in such a way that uh, they would have to go through, uh, say, three years of, uh, of education and training. They would have to take a loyalty oath to the state of Israel, and then they would become full citizens who would basically be involved in the same citizenship responsibilities that all Israelis have, including national service, not necessarily military, but some form of national service, and that uh, this would be offered to the Arab population voluntarily. If they don't want it, then, and he says a lot of them will take it. But uh, if they chose, choose not to, then they have the option of either leaving or um, of um, 
staying as long as they're not, uh, you know, they're not seditious and they're not uh, violent. And that he advocates a private fund that can help finance the uh, departure of uh, of the of Arabs who do not choose uh, citizenship. I, mean, that's, I think uh, that that that's, sounds like I a agree very with that last idea. idea. I agree with the last idea. Yep. Uh, but as to offering them citizenship, three years training, all that stuff, I reject it completely. Um, that's a pie in the sky. They will say anything. They have no fidelity to objective truth. They are a people where truth is subjective. They have the principle of taqiyah in, in the uh, Islamic language, uh, lexicon, uh, which allows you sure. to lie. I don't want to give them the vote. I don't want to give them the vote. Well, I think that I think that's something that augurs in favor of that is the fact that the demographics over the past ten or fifteen years indicate that the Arab population is dropping, whereas so the Jewish population <laughs> is one of the fastest growing. One hundred percent right. I know the people who have developed that information. Talking now about the uh, present situation, um, the uh, are you suggesting uh, then, Shai, that Israel should formally annex? Um, Judea and Samaria, and Absolutely. what about Gaza? Same. Okay. Well, it's a, there are but, logistical problems in terms of our rights. We have to be, start with our rights, and our rights are to own all of this land legally. Anti-Semitism in every generation is a pack of lies. That's what people do. They tell lies about evil things that we are supposed to have committed and which we don't commit them. They say the settlements are illegal. The settlements are not illegal. They're completely legal, and we have to fight for that idea. Settlements are completely legal. Our right to rule everything west of the Jordan River is in complete accordance with the League of Nations mandate, and this includes Gaza. As to the logistics of changing the situation, this is a tactical problem, and it's a serious problem. But I'm talking, we have, you have to begin with ground zero, and ground zero is our right to all of this land, and we are under no moral obligation to give these people citizenship in our land, particularly after their behavior over the hundred years. These people are brutal, they are savage. These, these terror tunnels were directed to the kindergartens in the communities lining the Gaza Strip. They plan to burst into the kindergartens and massacre all the kids. They've done this before in other schools. They've murdered Jews in Namalot in a schoolroom, school buses. These are people we owe nothing to. We have, an every, we have every right to annex this land as we should. And then we have the obligation as Jews to deal with these people as justly as we can, as we should, but that does not include suicide, and it would be suicide giving them the vote, and it's bad enough now. You mentioned before the population going up and down. The people who did this revolutionary new statistical work are personal friends of mine. They did great work. They show the lies of the, the, the so-called population explosion among the Arabs. The Arabs' population growth is diminishing. Ours is going up. Still, there are millions of them here in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, that we simply cannot absorb and give the vote to. So we have to, first of all, uh, uh, stake our claim and our rights to keep all of the land that we have, that we won in 1967. Then we should sort the thing out with them. As to peace, I'm a believer in peace. Peace will come. But peace will come when the Arabs themselves give us peace. There's nothing we can do to tempt them to. It's an emotional, philosophical, doctrinal problem with these people. It's, it's, that's why I say before the Roman Catholic Church changed this doctrine in 1965. It was a revolution after nearly 2,000 years. And what these Muslims have to do is to have a reformation which they never had, an age of enlightenment which they never had. There's never been a counter-reformation. In the democratic revolutions of the 18th and 19th and 17th centuries, they never have either. I believe in peace, but it has to come from them. 
You cannot enforce it. You cannot teach them. And until they come around to giving us our right to live free and independent of their domination, there will be no peace. And you know something, uh, Chuck? It's not the end of the world. Yeah. First thing the United States did no, I, when it uh, came into being was to create a department of war. Because that's what it means when you have a state. You have to fight for your freedom in every generation. And we have the obligation and the necessity, and it's not the end of the world, to have an army for the foreseeable future and defend ourselves from time to time. Right. I mean, it's basically a basic function of, of any sovereign state. Recently, exactly. uh, the uh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the uh, president of Egypt, yes. offered the Palestinian Authority sovereignty in, in the Sinai. Correct. Which I think is an incredibly generous and amazing offer. This is a, a fantastic land of oil rich. They could create a great nation there, and they turned it down. Well, they always turn it down. The oil is not in the area he offered them. The oil is in Abu Radis down on the bottom. Uh, he made that offer knowing they would turn it down because they always turn it down. They're not interested in, I can't say this enough, they're not interested in having their own independent state. They're interested in destroying our state. As Muslims and as Arabs, they want the booty and the plunder and the riches that we have created here. They covet it. This is the history of the Arab world. If you ever saw Lawrence of Arabia, the famous movie uh, with Peter O'Toole as Lawrence, he has a problem trying to organize the Bedouin to fight for their rights and their freedom, and they don't know what he's talking about. They do want to attack the Turks only because they want to steal what they can from the Turkish troop claims that they attack. Other than that, they have no interest in statehood. You offer them land, they're not interested in that. So it was, it was a pointless propaganda exercise by al-Sisi, knowing they would never accept it. The international left was uh, clearly square, head and shoulders with Hamas. What about them and what about the Israeli left? Have they learned anything from this last war? Where are they now? Good question. The left has, uh, just the other day when Abu Abbas, Abu Mazen rather, spoke at the UN last Friday, the response of the uh, elite here who are in the media, the entertainments, the universities, they're all crestfallen. They were all just absolutely shocked that the, he gave the speech that he gave. And most of those people, in their sober moments, recognize that the peace process, that's to say the Oslo process, is dead. 